Hello and welcome to another episode of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things or Making Things Better and Making Better Things. I can never remember what my own podcast is called. Um, and today's podcast is um, is a really lovely conversation with Sophie Thomas. Uh, Sophie is a uh, an artist, a designer, uh, she's a consultant and I, I ran a programme um, of activity with her called The Great Recovery, funded by um, Innovate and, um, and, and supported by the um, RSA, the um, Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturing and the Sciences. Um, God, you know, it's got to be six years ago now. Um, and it was, it was a programme geared around the circular economy. And I, I, I've, I, I say often that, the, that design is the single most effective environmental tool that there is. If you look at the way we design products, processes, systems, if we look at the way we design user behaviour, um, we, can, we can design out significant issues before they become significant. And at, at the same time as that, design has failed abysmally to tackle sustainability. And it's not that designers don't get it, they do. It's just that they're not empowered to do this. That when I mean when I say empowered, I mean the briefs they receive don't even consider sustainability, and consequently they don't consider sustainability. If I've got one grumpiness or complaint with designers, is that they don't push back hard enough on the brief. It really, really matters to challenge what you've been asked to do, and so when we conceived or when Sophie conceived of the great recovery it was a big old meeting in a room I remember it really clearly there were the people from a TSB innovate there um, there was also Jamie Burdett there um, from Warren again um, myself and and Sophie and um, and Dan from um, um, from Sophie's business and it was a really it was a really exciting meeting we, we kind of suddenly realized collectively that what we needed to do was just to get designers and scientists together that that we can't rely on designers alone they need to be informed and we can't rely on scientists alone because they need to communicate in a better way and actually consumers needed leading and and you know the risk with the risk that we've got at the moment is consumers that are highly motivated and, and, and not particularly well informed so we're still looking at science and, and saying it, it, it's is communicating poorly. So the Great Recovery took this approach that, that design was at, was at the, the heart and the problem and the solution of sustainability. And we ran, I was involved for two years, and we ran a series of great events that, that genuinely was, were groundbreaking and changed, changed things. And while we had Ellen MacArthur Foundation, you know, equally good and leadering at the time, not brilliant at playing nicely at times um whilst we had those doing incredible things they weren't talking about design so so the great recovery was genuinely um epoch changing so uh, a great a great project and sophie does way way more than that as um you're about to find out and it's been an utter joy to work with her over the years so um uh, buckle in i hope you enjoy this one um we go deep and um and it's it's a really it's a really nice podcast talk to you after anyway right we're recording that's all good so i'm sat on a really sunny day in soho which is my favorite bit of london always has been um in the chapel at the house of st barnabas 
It's really squeaky, so me and my guest have taken our shoes off because I ruined the podcast with Sam Roddick by squeaking my way through it. Um, and I'm sat with um, someone that I've worked with for about, I'd say I met about 15 years, 18 years ago, and we worked together really intensively about six years ago. Um, and she's one of my uh, favourite and one of the most talented designers I've worked with, and that is Sophie Thomas. Hi. Sophie. Hello. Tell me about yourself. Well, where shall I start? Um, so, yeah, I'm a designer. Uh, I trained at St Martin, the Royal College, years and years ago. Over, so I graduated Royal College like 97, but before then, I spent a lot of time. It's funny because, like, I was, you know, when you sort of mull over where you end up, you have a look about how you kind of come on this journey. I was sort of going right back and seeing what I was doing when I was like eight or you know, f- you know earlier than that and actually I had really um, great parents and they were kind of really supportive of me and creativity but also they were really um, activists so they were both on the Aldermaston marches in the 60s, they both got arrested, my mum was sort of showing me loads of pieces of all the kind of ephemera that they collected when um, CND started because they, they were based in, my dad was actually went for um, being a, sort of going into the GLA and he was yeah. sort of elected into the GLA like the, you know, when it was still at, at County Hall all these really? years ago, yeah, a Labour MP and um, and then, then when they moved to Oxford he became, he, my dad actually was a town planner and he went into teaching at Oxford Brooks, which is the Oxford Poly, Polytechnic yeah. at that point and um, he was really sort of influential on modern city and regeneration and planning and kind of, you know, the regeneration of cities for people rather than for kind of amazing, large monstrosity, the monolith kind of buildings. And actually was really, worked a lot on the Docklands when they were developing it, because his dad used to work at the Docklands. And, um, and so he kind of, they, both of them, and my mum actually was also part of the whole Green and Common movement. So they were both really active in their own way, but it was a really kind of domestic household as well. So it's this kind of weird mix of like doing your schoolwork, but then also on the weekend you'd all go and do the C&D marches and my gran and I would lie in the middle of the street in Oxford Circus and kind of pretend to be dead after the four minute warning and stuff like that. So it's, you know, you can see where it all comes from and it's all bubbling away. And um, I think when I, when I started going to art college, I realized that the kind of movement of C&D was not or the kind of, you know, the nuclear disarmament piece was actually quieter then at that point. So, that we, you know, we had this whole time of lethargy where things weren't so political, do you know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of stuff going down. And then actually it was sort of the beginning of the environmental movement was really picking up. I mean, obviously it goes way back, but for me that's when I started to find... What year was this? Well, I think it was, it was like late, it was 80s, yeah. so... We've seen more of like it was the save the whale kind of sure, yeah. stuff that was going on, and um, and I started to get really interested in the environmental movement and started to find my own kind of things to feel and ang- not angry about, but like passionate about. Yeah, and it's t- then it took me quite a long time to sort of bring that together with being creative and understanding the power of communication and understand the power of creativity to actually start movements and push people to make better decisions and get people 
to a point where they understood the issues around things. So that's where I want to focus yeah. that whole role of communication in, in um, behaviour change. Um, but you've been brilliant, actually, because what I always do in these is talk about people's childhood, and you've, you've already done so. But I'm going to take you back there a little bit. Yeah. Um, where were you born? Were you born in Oxford? I was born in Oxford, yeah. So what were they... I mean, you, you painted a really beautiful picture of like, both domestic bliss and and um, kind of resistance um, to, to kind of uh, bad stuff, um, nuclear stuff, environmental problems. Uh, that's, that's, I can see that, that's almost like 3D, like a, like a, I, can see the, the, I can see the threads on the tapestry there. Tell, tell me about what it sounded like. What did, what did your childhood smell and sound and taste mm. like? I mean, that's a good question. Um, growing up in Oxford was very idyllic because uh, we cycled everywhere. So it was a very easy city to get around. You literally had a really sort of quite a vibrant city centre, but you also could cycle back to our house along the river. And um, it was very easy to get out into very sort of rural fields and meadows. And we had like um, a place which was by the river, where, right by our house, where we could go and swim, we could do like, you know, river swimming and stuff. So it was really a great place. It was quite a safe place to grow up. Yeah. Um, it was very left-wing in the area because we lived in East Oxford, so it was really left, not in the kind of, un- in the, you think about the town and the gown yeah. structure of, of Oxford. We really lived in the kind of lefty kind of enclave. In Is East that Abingdon way? Or no, it's so outside East yeah. Oxford. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> and because um, and acado- it was full of academic kids you know like academic families so it's all very uh, yeah very right on but in a way it was really the, the interesting thing was that it's surrounded by um, American air bases so you've got Upper Hayford, Green and Common oh. all these different things so when um, so it was a real hotbed of activity in terms of campaign atom and C&D yeah there was loads going on there so actually um, we were you know a lot of the town hall meetings were in the Oxford town hall and we would go over there and my mum would just and dad would just dump us in the corner and we'd and instead of like just you know oh just don't talk or don't say anything we'd be given a load of crayons and we said make a poster about Reagan <laughs> or Thatcher and that would be that would be our Saturday afternoon so um, it was a really great place to grow up it was really uh, yeah it was really safe and actually it was you're surrounded by people who thought the same way and it was a very uh, left wing kind of hotbed of activity so you know it sounds. You know, very middle class. Sounds idyllic to me. <laughs> I don't live anywhere like that, right? I mean, it's beautiful where I live, yeah. but it's the working class right wing. It's what I really miss, actually, in London. The fact that, you, you know, it takes you about an hour and a half to get out of London before you start to see proper fields. Whereas if you're in, London, in Oxford, you can just cycle to either to the canals or to the river, get on a, you know, take a punt down into these beautiful areas that are very green and lush. And I, that's the kind of bit I miss. Mm. That kind of easy access into nature. So we'll come back to that in a minute, because I'll ask you why you still live in London. <laughs> but what did you eat? What did I eat? What was your first food memory? Probably risotto that my dad... You were so middle class. No, but you know what? Well, I'll tell you what was really funny, is that my dad was a brilliant cook. My mum did really good curries, but my dad cooked every day. And he had this thing called the Thomas Computer, right? And he, we'd come back from, from school and work and there'd be nothing in the cupboard save some chickpeas, a tin of chickpeas and a bit of curry powder and some, some random old bit of lettuce or something. And he'd come up he'd, and we'd say, 
put it in the Tom's computer, what can we make? And he came up with these amazing dishes. <laughs> and so actually he taught me how to cook. Um, he taught me how to do like really good basics, which I really kind of pushed my kids. Like, this is how you make a basic tomatoes, you yeah. know, ragu. This is how you make a risotto, like bits of old chicken, bung it in a risotto. Yeah, yeah. So yes, it is very middle class, but actually... No, I like it. I'm only joking. <laughs> I just, I remember my mum making risotto for the first time. And my mum and dad cooked really well and we cooked everything yeah. from scratch. You know, that, that's the way we are and it's the way you are as well. Um, and I remember my mum making risotto and it was, it was boiled white rice with some frozen peas and frozen sweet corn. And I think we had bits of ham in it. And it, and it, it wasn't a risotto. What it was was... Like rice with bits in rice it. Rice with bits in it. Yeah, but this was the 70s, so <laughs> yeah. it was considered incredibly middle class for, for where we were as well. Yeah. And what music did you listen to, Soph? My first... So uh, the one thing, we, we're not religious as a family, um, but what we did every Sunday, and this is another thing about, brilliant thing about Oxford, is we go to car boot sales. Yeah. And since I was about... About probably about eight, seven or eight, we would go every Sunday. We'd we'd go through the paper, find out where they all were. You know, we had a car by then, which is so it would have been actually I was probably a bit older, about thirteen was when we got the car. Um, and we'd drive to all these places. So I bought my first record player and my first piece of my first album I bought was Ziggy Stardust. So I then managed I just collected all, I've got all the David Barry on vinyl. Wow. So that is my and but every um, summer, because both my grandparents and both my parents came from Margate, and we, I basically lived in Margate every summer since the year dot. It, it's, it's one of my favourite towns. It might be now, it wasn't. <laughs> I, I, I went for the first, I remember having this conversation with you, I went for the first time about ten years ago. So, no, it must have been after that, because the, tur- the Turner had been built. Built, oh yeah. So over eight years ago. Yeah. And I remember coming back and thinking, fuck me, it's beautiful and ugly. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's kind of boom, and it's really, really quite stuck and impoverished as well. It's really, yeah, it and, really is. And it's, I'm guessing, I've not been for a couple of years, I'm guessing the impoverished bit has lifted, and I wonder where I those people have gone. I have been for a couple gone. of years, but um, see, my gran lived in Cliftonville, which is the bit up from Mark, so if you're in Margate, it's a kind of bay, I know it, yeah. and then you go up the, up the cliffs, and then Cliftonville's on the top bit, and it was basically full of old knitting shops, you know, with that yellow film that they have in the window to stop everything fading. <laughs> Do you know what, I'd forgotten about that, <laughs> and you've just transported me back to walking, th- walking through Coventry, um, Hill Fields, and seeing that across the front of all of the textile shops. Yeah, exactly, and the, uh, any kind of shop, they loved it, and anyway, I suppose because I've seen it since the year dot. And I have great memories of it. You know, we would go down to the beach. We'd basically, uh, we'd get dumped on the beach for the whole day and we'd be part of the happy, clappy sort of club. They yeah. had this kind of club for kids, which is all about, like, praising the Lord. And you know, we'd just be there in the back, just eating. But you're not religious. No, not religious <laughs> at all. But, so, so, um, so, but what, the thing about Margate was that there was a, an absolutely amazing second-hand record shop which I literally used to spend most of my time in buying all these fantastic uh, David Barry LPs because I got my whole collection. Do you still play vinyl? I do, yeah. I love it. it is, there's something magical about it, isn't there? A friend of mine is a musician called um, Martin Stevenson. He's in a band called Martin Stevenson and the Dainties. And he, he mentioned on Facebook yesterday he's crowdfunding or crowdsourcing funds for a new vinyl. And uh, he says, yeah, if I can get to 
that what he said? If I can get to 50, I can do it. And he's been inundated. Yeah. Because everyone will pay, you know, whatever it is up front. And so, so you can now get really small issues of vinyl yeah. again. And, and the resurgence in vinyl, and also film, is really interesting, actually. Um, and, and it's inevitable because every single trend is in reaction to the trend that came before and the ease of digital and the disposability of both images and sounds because of a digital format belittles it yeah and having something that's so precious really really matters and yeah. half of my vinyl got ruined and it was stored i didn't throw it away it was stored in the garage and the garage had two problems termites or, or um um wood lice yeah and um and, and it then it got damp yeah. and so it, i've got the vinyl still and i won't get rid of it but half the sleeves are absolutely goosed I know, i've got some beautiful gatefolds of, of uh yeah, the rising fall. Don't. I, 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 <laughs> genuinely, I genuinely regret not putting those into some kind of storage. So that's really interesting. So what, growing up in oscillating, I can see you oscillating between Margate and Oxford and, and with this constant fire from your parents around um, caring for stuff, around, mm. around giving a shit. Um, was there a reaction to that where you didn't give a shit? Uh, I think yes, because, you know, you can have a worthy family and it can all, you can really backfire, can't it? And I'm really conscious of that with my kids, you know, just banging on about this stuff and they're like, oh, mum, shut up, shut up, you know. But actually, um, I think there was a time when I just wanted to, you know, buy stuff and where where the you know I didn't want to feel like I was kind of a bit hairy jumper or to or I couldn't fit in yeah I think every teenager goes through you know we all go through it like really just wanting to blend in so you're not really sticking out and people pick on you and but it sounds like where you were there were probably other people like you there weren't and I think you yeah I did end up I mean I did get bullied quite badly at school and and I think you then find your clan and you, you, you can become like the bit of the oddballs on the side, but that's good because you've just found your clan. It, and that's what happened. I just, and we were all very, very, um, we've just became hippies for like, you know, three years. And, oh, Diddy Goths, actually. Diddy Goths. <laughs> no idea what that means. Well, just means Tell me about it. Young, you know, it's like wearing black, like lots of, starts off with like Rocky Horror Picture Show kind okay. of stuff and then moves into like... The Damned, The Cure. Uh, the Damned, to this day, I see. I don't see them as a goth band, I see them as a punk band, but they did become a goth band. And The Cure, I see as beyond categorisation. <laughs> um, I think Robert Smith's an utter genius. Oh, it's brilliant. I love that. I, you know, it's because he crosses over so many different genres, doesn't he? Ah, yeah, he, he looks like a goth, <laughs> but, but Head on the Door is such a beautiful album. Yeah. And, and, some, and some of the early um, albums, they're, they're actually quite terrifying. They're, 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 there's, some scary, there's some scary horror movie music in those albums. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> That's really interesting. What's, um, you know what I like now, because I'm trying to get my youngest into music, because he's a really amazing guitar player, and he's, we've just introduced him to... Well, he's, he actually le he's learning classical guitar, yeah. and he's going into... He's learning Jimi Hendrix now, and he's learning 12-bar blues, and um, trying to get 
we play a lot of music in the car. We play a lot of Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. And um, I really like the Arctic Monkeys partly because they are basically poets. They're the kind of music you can really listen to the words to and go, that's brilliant, you know, the I rhyming in it. No, I, complete, I completely agree with you. Um, I think Alex is a poet. I think the first album, lyrically, is nearly perfect. And there's a couple of tracks on the second album. 505 is one of my favourite tracks. Yeah. Um, not, musically, it's, it's, it's pretty pedestrian, but lyrically, it, it makes me want to cry. And, and then where they went to with their third and subsequent albums was much more musically guitar-driven. Yeah. And it's, I love it, but I couldn't hear the words as clearly. Mm. I have to work harder on the third and fourth albums to hear the poetry than I did on the first two albums yeah. when the poetry kind of fell onto my lap. And I think they are, I mean, he's astonishing, but he, the band is more than him, just. Um, I think um, the band is, will be looked back upon as being um, one of the best bands of the, of the last hundred years. They're, yeah. they're, they're amazing. Um, so that's an incredible childhood. And I mean, it wasn't all like that, but that's the sort of the highlights. No, you were running through fields of wheat, not with, <laughs> not, not with. But, but tell me about, I'm interested in this bullying thing because I haven't spoken, well, maybe one or two people who, no, do you know what? I haven't spoken to anybody that wasn't bullied at school. No. I was bullied at school. Not much, mm. because my skill is people skills, and I found a way through yeah. to not be bullied. But I was bullied, a couple of people. How did that make you feel? Um, I mean, I think it's... <laughs> when people say, you know, oh, it's part of a rite of passage or, you know, it makes you stronger, I think that's shit, actually. <laughs> I agree. Um, I, I made me feel really crap, you know, um, and I think it really did didn't help me in my kind of the rest of my sort of growing up and going to college and stuff. It made me much shyer, much harder to. I had to work. I had to basically work harder yeah. to make friends and to sort of not to fit in, but just to really. Relax about it. Relax about the, you know, everybody has the anxiety of like, you want to be liked, you want to have, be friend, you want to have friends around you, you want to make, you know, if you contact somebody that they go, oh, hi, I haven't seen great, you know, like actually to be enthusiastic. Yeah. And um, that's, been, that's always been my big thing, like actually just getting over it and just doing it. And, and I think part of, I would say that that's part of the drive of like, a lot of the things that I've done subsequently where I've just gone and created a, you know, a week-long event at, at the Design Council or with Great Recovery has been very much about um, pushing myself forward and actually making myself do stuff which is out of my comfort zone because I think it's not about wanting to make friends but it's actually about that, that, that same uh, energy that kind of makes you do things not to become a wallflower. So sure. It's the kind of thing that a lot of us... I think it's a very... It's quite. I see it a lot of a lot of women. I do see it a lot of men as well. I think it's hidden more in men. They just kind of they have that bravado. They kind of get over it quicker. They hide it quicker. I think they hide it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fast. This is a really interesting area because that seeking approval, that 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 looking for other people to validate what we're doing and who we are, is often a reason that people do do those things. You've done amazing work. I never. I would never have known this, by the way. Um, and and the thing is, Sophie. 
you are uniformly loved, right? I don't know anyone that works with you or has worked with you that, that doesn't really, really like But you. I can be a real pain in the arse as well. Yes. I, no, I've seen that. <laughs> not in a bad way, but, but we're, not all, we're not all honey, are we? we you know, you've got, to get a bit of, you've got to get a bit of wax in your honey occasionally. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks. That's really sweet, Mark. But I, I, and I think we, the other thing I, I think is very, very nice, warming to hear that is that we don't tell people enough that they're good at things. Well, we don't. For my 50th, um, which was maybe a year ago now, still haven't had a party. It is coming. Um, I hope so. It'll yeah. be a party of all parties. It, is, it, it might be a 51st party at this <laughs> stage. But um, for my 50th, Nicola did the most amazing thing. Um, she, she got 50 friends to write a letter telling me what they thought of me. And, um, and she gave it me, I think it was the Friday before my birthday. I was really busy. I was doing a massive contract. And um, she gave me, look, I, I, the, the last letter's arrived. The last thing has arrived for this present. And she gave me this file. <laughs> I opened it. And the first letter's from her. And she said, I can't write letters very well, and therefore I've got other people to write a letter. And then she wrote the most beautiful letter. <laughs> and I was, I was, it was, it's, it's floods, floods yeah, of tears. Yeah. And I, and I started to read what people wrote, and I had to stop. And then she said, she said go to the back. It, the, you know, the, the, the kid stuff's at the front. Go to the back. It's probably less upsetting. No, it wasn't. It was <laughs> because we don't find the time, and I now purposefully find the time to tell people, not just the people that wrote me nice letters, everyone, how, mm. how important they are. Because it's only ever said after we die. Yes, I know. I've been talking to this fantastic um, guy who's been looking at how we um, build confidence in business. Yeah. And um, he's, we were talking about the 360. I don't know if you've ever done a 360. A 360 so, re um, re review? Re review. Yeah. I oh. think they're the most toxic thing. They're disgusting. And it's like, it seems this positive thing. Let's do it through, uh, you know, for a 360 is basically you go around and you get different, like, what are these people good at? What could they improve at? So it's all done in a very positive light. But anonymously. But anonymously. And you know who's written things because you can just tell. And there'll always be one thing in it and you just go, oh my God, they, re they think I'm like really bad at timesheets or time, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm notoriously bad at, at timekeeping. Um, but you just spend the entire time focusing on that one thing and forgetting all the amazing things that everyone else has said about you. And he said, this is really bad. And actually what we should be doing is talking about a really good thing about you and how that has helped me yeah. and to do something. And that, how great is that, that we have positive feedback yeah. on this stuff? You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think there's another... I do, when I do my presentation workshops, which are less about presentation and more about understanding who you are, mm. and then I do one on understanding who, who you are, which is like hardcore. Like people cry all day. It's, it's brilliant. Um, but it's hard. And um, one of the things I tell them, one of the things I explain is that we need to learn to, to, to receive praise. So, so not only do we not tell people what we think, when, when we do muster the courage to say, I think you're really great because, we do that classic British thing <coughs> of going, oh, oh, it was nothing. Oh, th this old suit that I found in the back of the wardrobe, it's nothing. That old, that presentation that changed your life, that book that really made difference to you, that time I spent with you that I gave and you have grown from, it was nothing. We, we devalue it. Yeah. And the other half of the giving equation is receiving. Yeah. And we're really bad at it. 
Um, so it, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of almost meditative practice to, to, to give, but also to receive kindness as well. And you've got me thinking, there's loads to talk about, so, but you've got me thinking about... You have to do part two. I've said that with nearly every podcast, <laughs> but I am going to do a part two. I am um, with you. Um, those three sixty reviews—they're really interesting because what we've done is we've taken the playground and imported it into business. Yes, oh, it's such a—it is absolutely right. It's a kind of bullying, pro, like basically justifying it on a piece of paper. It is. And calling it business, like your personal development review. I just think... Being nasty is personal development. Yeah, and it's the kind of whole anonymous thing is just ridiculous, actually. It, it's, it's really unpleasant. And I, I, remember, I remember looking at um, my, our middle daughter um, was home educated. In fact, the three of our kids were home educated for a period. But Matilda was being really um, badly treated at school and not supported by the, by the staff mm. in any way, shape or form. And, and so we took her out and home educated her for six years, along with um, 20 other, and they were all mums, 20 other mums working together. Uh, so it was a really broad group, and there were a couple of days where they were in a small group, a couple of days in a group of 20, one day a week when they were in a group of maybe 60 kids. Mm. And, and the criticism we received from, I'm going to call them friends, but some of them weren't, mm. was, yeah, but what about their social skills? And I remember trying to explain that the, the loneliest place to be is, is stood on your own in a playground surrounded by other people being ghastly to them. And these aren't skills that we need. Mm. The, the, these are situations <laughs> that we should, we should erode and, and remove. And I don't know, I had a really interesting conversation with someone recently about exams. He was saying, you know, we should be bringing back exams where you don't do coursework, where you just work for two years and you get tested at the end. You know, we need to, we need to, <coughs> reflect what happens in business and mm. I said well when was the last time you were given a two year contract <laughs> and not, it not looked at <laughs> until the very end, end. and we've got this we've got it all wrong I and I don't know how you solve it but what I do know is you can really damage people by, by bullying them and school is where it starts yeah. so talk to me about um, talk to me about communication because we've got about ten minutes left yep what I love about your work, you, I mean, you're really clever and, and you're really artistic. Thank that's, you. That's, that's a given. What I love about your work is you communicate in really short sentences massive feelings. And the first time that I saw you do it, I've said words with you before this, and you're always really good, but the first time that you cut through and made me go was when you did your Don't Turn Your Back on the Ocean. And it was the, there was those words. Don't turn your back on the ocean. Made me go fuck, and and we have not not just with ocean debris. That really matters. It's the mm. third largest impact on the ocean. The second one being um, being overfishing, and the third one being climate change. All of those three things really yeah, yeah. matter. How how does your creative mind work when you've got to come up come out with something as pithy? Yeah. How does it do it? How did you start? Um, years of training. <laughs> is it, or is it just genius? <laughs> it's just genius, I thought Mark. So. It's just genius. Um, no, because I mean, you don't really get training at St Martin's, do you? <laughs> Not as far as I, and Daisy went there, and I, was it St Martin's? She went to, yeah, it was. And no, I don't think you get much training. Um, I don't know. I think uh, we have, I mean, 
so we got a family friend who uh, was a I knew from years and years ago, and he was called um, Andy Vargo, and he was a graphic designer, and he had this amazing studio that we used to go and visit, and had very nice chickens as well, and he, they lived in this very idyllic place, and I was just really excited by the fact that he had this, he did this amazing job as a graphic designer, and um, I also spent quite, I've also always spent quite a lot of time about really trying to work out what the essence of a prop, of a message is. So even through the work that I do at Thomas Matthews, we're always trying to kind of refine, refine, refine to find out what it is. If you're asking the right question, even if it's about how you get the brief, how do you redefine it? If you look at some of the very first projects we did, like No Shop, um, when we were told, we were asked by um, Friends of the Earth to bring, when they bought Colour Larson's um, Buy Nothing data yeah. to the UK for the first year, and we were working with them and they said, can you design a poster for a library and other public spaces about Buy Nothing Day? And we were like, no, because the actual essence of it is that you want to stop people shopping, buying crap. So build a shop on a, you know, you take over a shop for three days or whatever on a shopping street and call it No Shop okay. with a strap line of like, nothing could be better. You know, it's just like... It's wordplay. It could be better, that's yeah, lovely. It's the best strap line, isn't it? Um, and then we said, here's your poster, and we gave them a receipt. And it was basically all the posters, all the information was printed on a receipt, and everybody who came got a bag with no shot written on it, with a strap line, and that was the, And all of the posters that were designed inside the shop were printed on old billboards, because when you print a billboard, massive advertising billboard, or then you did, you printed three, t three times the amount that you needed in case they reran the advertising campaign. Sure. Which they never did, because they always changed things. So you had all these warehouses full of all these, po like 16 po you know, sheet posters or whatever, just sitting there waiting to be destroyed, or, you know, shredded or whatever. That's so we stuff. printed all the posters on those old ones and then had them in the shop. So you, when you went in, you had all these buy, sell, you know, fantastic offer um, statements and when you walked out you had on the back with all the questions like is less better you know like is it satisfaction guaranteed etc so always has been about using different types of media whether it's visually hanging a week's worth of waste from a canteen in the in a gallery or in a space or asking or using text in that way it's about finding the right hook yeah so often my work is, you know, now at the moment I'm working with Louis Thompson, who's a glass blower. Yeah, I've seen that on Instagram, it's beautiful. Yeah, and we just um, built or did all these pieces for a glass exhibition in a craft exhibition about um, ocean. And we just used all my plastic from Hawaii that I collected in 2014 and, and started with these old bottle tops and then blew a whole piece based on, you know, that would fit the top. Yeah from waste glass, from, from, so it's always about and um, finding the right message. So actually for that it was really good because it was in this amazingly beautiful, pristine space and everyone was going, oh my God, you've stuck a, half a toothbrush on that beautifully thing, beautiful thing that you've blown. And we're like, no, that's the most important thing of that whole, of that whole vessel. And people are like, oh my God, you know, that's so powerful. You're like, actually you're just changing the medium so the medium becomes the message. Well, so there, you, there you go, I was going to say, that's really, I, I remember doing, in about 90, um, a little bit about 96, at the height of the Agenda 21 mm -hmm. stuff, 
I ran an Agenda 21, um, which was all around about local, local sustainability, for those that don't know what Agenda 21 is. Um, I ran an Agenda 21 um, festival in Bradford, um, and it was a business festival, which was not seen to be where Agenda 21 sits. It was mm-hmm. uh, business was the enemy, and we made it we made it not the enemy. Yeah. And I did this art exhibition in the Bradford Design Exchange, beautiful building in a place called Little Germany, and we did without the, without the creativity that you have. We we just put really lovely big bales of cans and mm. sculptures out of waste, and this was this was. 23 years ago mm. and people were horrified at first because they smelt they, <laughs> they did they smelt a special brew and tango um, which is a dreadful combination I've tried <laughs> yeah, it and it stopped you in your tracks yeah that's the important thing that it stops you in your tracks and actually makes you think about something differently and um, whether it's through a message actually they never turn your back on the ocean comes from a message that they have on beaches because in Hawaii if you turn your back on the ocean you get these sudden sudden uh, waves that can yeah. actually drag you into the currents and kill you and a lot of people get killed by that way so I was before we were going over to Hawaii um, we were as a holiday we were told by somebody I'll don't forget, never turn your back on the ocean. I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm going to take that. <laughs> and you, and you, 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 you made it mean more. Yeah. So, Soph, um, we're about coming towards the end, and we've barely started. Um, the work you did with the Great Recovery, again, right, again, so the wordplay on the, on, on the Great Recovery was astonishing because it wasn't just about environment, it was also about economy, it was, mm-hmm. about, it was about using businesses as, as a solution and engaging designers to solve problems that they were ignoring, frankly. Um, still they still are, you're right. Where do you go from here? What's the next five years look like for you? Oh, it's quite exciting. Um, so I've got loads of opportunity and of course it's the, the old uh, thing. So a lot of people, from a circular economy perspective, and, and design perspective, a lot of people are going, you know, so where do I buy the best circular economy, XXX, dot, 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 you know? And um, quite frankly, I don't know the answer to that. And I think obviously it's an iterative journey, but I think actually I'm just a bit fed up and I think design, I think I might have to just start something. Right, if you want a partner in this, <laughs> I remember watching, I can't remember, buy, there's a website called Buy It Once or something, and it, it, it's fine, okay, it's fine, but it's really unimaginative, and all it is is a storefront for other people. Yeah. And <coughs> I genuinely think that, there, that there's a movement here, and I came up with an alternative idea, and I came up with an alternative range of products that you could buy if you want, and this isn't just virtue signaling, this is stuff that you really need. Yeah. And I've not had any time to do it, but what I did notice was there were loads of gaps. Yeah. That there weren't products that, that did it. No. They just they, they just weren't. I'm fed up of really shit coffee cups that you can buy. So I bought this, not an advert, Kinto one. Mm-hmm. I've never used a better coffee cup, a dis, um, non-disposable, reusable mm. coffee flask. It's it's incredible. Eight hours of hot. Oh, nice. Eight hours of scalding, actually. <laughs> so 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 stuff like that would go on it, but actually other things. You know, we need to redesign them from the beginning. Yeah, and I think that's the key. So I'm, uh, so I'm working on that. Um, I'm also really interested in in concepts like skunk works, where we can just 
I'd love to have a space where I can just pull in all of the designers, you know, and pull in you and, you know, like LCA experts and say, okay, we're going to redo that. We're going to look at this problem, this product or this, this particular issue, say mattresses all the way to like, you know, very much great recovery I did, shove whatever problem product or piece you have in the middle and work it through the whole network and get what would be the optimum solution for that product. I'd love to have a space where I could get everyone together to do that, but that's one of my ambitions, always wanted to do that. The Great Recovery was a step towards that. You need to have proper funding for it. Uh, yeah, what was missing there was, I mean, it, it was interesting actually, uh, towards the end, I think we, I think, I wasn't involved in the last phase so much, but I'll always remember when we had the opportunity to work with a big furniture producer, Seller. I wanted to redesign the shackle lock that holds the furniture together. Because most furniture breaks when you drag it across the room, when you want to move it from yeah. room to room. If you make that shackle lock undoable and, re and removable, you can disassemble as fast as you can assemble, yeah. and stuff will last a lot, lot longer. You don't get the, the, you know, the skips full of the yeah, stuff yeah. at, 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 um, at civic community sites. And, but it's the most unsexy job ever. What did you redesign? The shackle that holds the corners. <laughs> it's not cool, right? But they're but, not cool. But that's the thing. Matters. Actually, that's the one, I think, the one issue that came out of the Great Recovery was actually, if you get the glue and the fixtures right, anything is possible. Yeah. Because actually what happens is that we solder things together, we glue things together, we create screws which we can't take out, and all of that makes... The, the, the get you know getting those materials back out again just you know impossible and, and it's always about ease of manufacturing yeah. and not ease of unmanufacturing it, it is and keeping people out of certain products and, yeah. and also you know we still you know it's 2019 but we're still manufacturing on a post-war footing we're still building in planned obsolescence I know. Yeah. and you don't want to take your washing machine apart and be able to fix it because you wouldn't be selling them a new one as soon as we begin to change the the challenge we have with circular economy is not product design. We can no. solve all those problems. It's business model design. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, and that's where we need to go. Yeah, so that's one thing. Um, I've got a book that I'm supposed to be writing about, the great, about great recovery. Um, and making, I mean, one of the things that I've, the, the very last uh, things that I was doing last year was actually trying to become more creative because I think when you run a business, you, it's very easy to fall into a s position of like managing and I'm not a manager, I'm a creative and actually it's taken me a long time to, to, to realise that and actually pull back and become do my own creative work again which is never turn your back was the first piece of that so I'm, I'm going to do more of that because that's actually where I think my most of, most of my creative qualities are sort of desperate to get out and make things. I can see that, and I remember, I remember you making that shift, and the the, the pent up demand within you, the pent up desire, exploded, and, and it, it was unbelievable. I'm going to finish with the question that I said I'd ask you. Um, you've been amazing. Thank you. We'll do another one for certain. I want to do these. Half of me thinks that they're not. It's not enough to just do podcasts. I kind of want conversations that yeah. we go back to every three months or something. Sophie, you drew this picture of an incredible childhood in an amazing place. And I've been, I've been to where you live, it's stunning. You live in a lovely part of London. Why do you still live in London? 
I don't live in London. I live in Stone Newton. I live uh, in a village in London. So you've recre recreated your Oxfordshire idyllic. I think you have to in, in London. London. You can't live in London. You can't live like domestic living in yeah. London. It's too hard. It's too dusty. It's too dirty, polluted. It's too unfriendly. But you can live like in, a, in your outer, you know, your kind of everyday work day. You know, I love cycling across the river. I love my studio. Um, I love the people. I love yeah. the fact that I can get on my bike and go anywhere. Yeah. I know how to get to places. Oh, I have city map for taking me to these places. I love the fact that I can just go um, to, the, to the, one of the best museums in the world on a Saturday afternoon if I want to and not have to plan getting a train or yeah. all that kind of stuff. And the £100 train ticket per person that comes with that. Exactly. Yeah. But I love the fact that my kids go to a local school. I know everyone on my street. Yeah. We have a park, we have, I actually, our house looks over the reservoir, so we have a, a very old, um, we don't have anything overlooking us, and we have amazing bird life, and so I have that kind of okay, bit of it. Oxford. I get it, I get it. I, I actually, I'm in a, the most amazing place. Can you swim in the reservoir? Yeah. That's incredible. Could you open swimming in the summer, they've just opened it again for the season. Amazing. Sophie, you, you're lovely, <laughs> the work you do is brilliant, the way you use words and the way you apply those words to your art is um, it cuts through, it cuts through like citrus into grease and it, it really matters. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Um, I hope, um, I hope that resonated with a lot of you or for those of you that needed it to. Um, school is uh, a brutal place and um, I was mildly bullied at school uh, and if anything I was probably aligned more with the bullies I don't think I was a bully but but uh, but some of my friends were and um, I probably didn't do enough to stop them so we don't help ourselves in creating the strongest people by bullying them I had a friend who um who, whose, whose view was we should allow kids to be bullied because it prepares them for the workforce. And actually, I, I disagreed with him entirely because I think bullying creates behaviours within the workforce. I think it's the other way around. I genuinely think that, that we recreate the playground in the office and, and I don't think it's good at all. And I've got four kids. They've all been educated in different ways from state to private and, and homeschooling. And and I, I remember really clearly when um, when we decided to homeschool them, we were told um, we were people said you know they'll, they'll they'll be isolated. There's nowhere more isolating than standing on your own in the playground, while everybody else takes the piss out of you. So um, yeah, I don't have any truck with that, I'm afraid. But th that was a great conversation. Sophie is an incredibly strong woman and um, has done amazing things, and uh, will continue to do more amazing things. So I really hope you enjoyed that. I hope um, it struck a chord. Uh, if you have any suggestions, any comments, please get in touch. Mark at thisisapeape.co.uk. And I really appreciate you listening. It matters more than you'll know. Thank you.